Today you're going to hear from Brandon Williams, who's a 17-year veteran from the United States Air Force, where he was a F-15E fighter pilot. He takes the concepts that he learned in the military and applies them to business. He's been doing it for eight years as a keynote speaker and an executive consultant. His program on human factors leadership is wonderful. Today we're going to learn about how to mitigate human error, what is a commander's intent, his perspective on decentralized execution, a debrief, developing informal leaders, and who should be creating tactical plans. If you like what you're hearing, please help us spread the word to more entrepreneurs by rating us the number of stars that we deserve on Apple Podcasts. You're going to love what you hear from Brandon Williams. Hey, Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rich and, uh, and John. Appreciate you having me. And uh, always great to sit down and talk uh, with people like you, especially entrepreneurial type uh, subjects and topics, given I consider myself a bit of a uh, serial entrepreneur. So thank you. Serial entrepreneur and <laughs> grew up in uh, your backgrounds in the military. Tell us about the your experience uh, in the military even before and how that blossomed into something entrepreneurial for you. Yeah, um, obviously my military background and what I did in the military directly influenced uh, a lot of things I did uh, post-military. So starting way back when, um, I come from the Atlanta, Georgia area. I actually live here now, but I was born and raised here. Um, went to the United States Air Force Academy, uh, graduated from there, and went on to Air Force pilot training, where I went on to fly the F-15E uh, Strike Eagle in the Air Force. I uh, served 12 years, almost active duty, where I, uh, in addition to being a fighter pilot, served in several leadership roles uh, in the military as well, and a lot of other training that influenced uh, what I did post-military. That also led to a career uh, where I got on with a major airline, which was perfect for doing the starting my own business and um, doing the entrepreneur thing because it gives me a lot of the flexibility just based on the schedule and, and how I can you know work my schedule to do things like that. So major airline pilot. And then I got into the management leadership consulting world about eight years ago. A couple of years ago, I started my company, LeadTAC, which... Uh, I got the idea for it because as I was working with all these Fortune 500 companies and business leaders all over the world, we would give them these processes and models. But what I saw were questions I were getting were, you know, kind of what I consider basic leadership questions. So topics about accountability, um, communication, you know, empowerment, motivation, all these different topics that I saw were very individualized with leaders, if you will. And that's where I got the idea for LeadTAC. And it stands for Leading Tactically, LeadTAC, because the whole idea is when you talk about leadership, strategy is important. We have to have strategy, obviously. But when you talk about leadership, you're talking about connecting that strategy to execution and leading your people through that, which leadership really gets, when you get to the nuts and bolts of it, really gets to the tactical wiring of, of how we work and operate as humans and how what motivates us, what drives us, all those different topics we can talk about. And so that's where I get the term lead tech. And it really is focused on the whole model is what I base everything on is what I call a human factors leadership model, which essentially, again, taps back into my experience going back to my uh, days as a fighter pilot. You know, when you jumped on that aircraft and there's 250 switches, dials and displays 
and I was a young 20 something. And you look at this and you're just looking at this stuff. You haven't even fired, the, fired up the airplane yet. And then you turn it on, the engines roar and all the lights and bells and whistles come up. I mean, you've had the training, you've had the simulators, but when you first get in there, you know, you're, it's like kickoff time, you know, you're, you're there and you can imagine the complexity, the variables you're facing. And then you take off and now you're flying at 340 miles per hour with potentially other teammates or wingmen that you're operating with in a very dynamic, complex environment. When you're talking about weather, terrain, and this is just peacetime. We're not even talking about any kind of combat operations. So what I got from that, though, was the way we trained, the way we mitigated human error, the way we worked in those complex environments. That's where I developed the model and take some of those attributes because I said, hey, if I could take this stuff that I did you know, then how they quickly accelerate us to a point where we can operate in that environment and lead in that environment, what that could do for, for other teams. So that's, that's the whole background where I got the idea for it. Obviously, uh, my military background goes right into that and, and directly, um, you know, is a basis for what I teach and what I consult with. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for that overview. You had started uh, when you had talked about strategy and connecting strategy with execution. Can you elaborate on uh, strategy and vision, maybe some of the difference between the two, how you would recommend those get developed, and then ultimately how that gets connected to execution? Sure. Well, I think, first of all, um, when you hear about strategy and vision, kind of a, a business question always comes up, no matter what world you're in. And I think the best way, you know, strategy is that roadmap to that vision, to, to put it simply, I think. Um, you know, you can read about leaders that the reason they're such good leaders is because they can translate a vision very well. They might may not be the most proficient technical expert or the smartest person in the room, but they're extremely good at defining that vision and defining that end state. One of the, the components of my human factors leadership model I talked about was I just I simply call it leadership and adjust culture. And what that is, though, really part of that is what we in the military, what we called was commander's intent. And commander's intent is a very detailed, um, clear keyword, clear uh, view or, or vision, if you will, of what the end state looks like. If you know anything about D-Day and the history of that, you know, by all accounts, the initial execution of it, it was going to look like a military failure. I mean, weather rolled in, winds, fog, you know, paratroopers were separated for miles and miles and miles, separated from teams. Some of them landed by themselves. And so you, if you were looking at that real time from a God's, God's eye view, you would say, oh my gosh, it's going to be a disaster. But what happened? You saw teams come together. You saw individual units, men that have never met each other in their life, obviously on the same side, but they get together and what do they do? They start moving forward because they had a very clear commander's intent, a very clear detailed vision of what the end state was. And then we all know obviously what happened after that. So I, I think it's that being able to be what I call clear, concise, correct, calm, and, and being able to translate that commander's intent, but more importantly, being able to delegate that through decentralized execution. Yeah. You know, I apologize. I didn't start with this. Thank you for your service. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate my freedom, and it's because of guys like you. And uh, I think I'd shared with you on a call we had last week or so. I have a 17 year old that uh, yeah, you did is getting into the Navy herself, and we're just starting to learn what you know what that's all about as a family. And right, appreciate everything it Good. took for, uh, for you to have sacrifice in doing that. Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you.
you know, obviously from the management consulting, right, prior to starting Lead Tech and, and, and whatnot, you did a lot of process improvement you talked about. Uh, what was the primary thing that you would find most common in those companies that you would go tweak? You know, something we did as a fighter pilot in the Air Force, something that was near and dear to our heart was what we called a debrief. And it didn't matter after every mission, uh, combat peacetime, it didn't matter. We always came back and whoever was part of that formation we went in the room, shut the door, and we conducted a debrief. And it was a debrief where, again, it didn't matter what you could be. A, and this has happened before. You could be a general officer. Uh, you could be a, an admiral. You know, you you could be somebody many years ahead of me in rank and seniority. But if I was the young flight lead that day as a, a twenty-something-year-old, or you know, whatever, and I was leading, guess what? I'm running that debrief, and it's my job to not only point out my errors and my mistakes, but also point out yours and your mistakes. And it's your job. And I've seen generals admit they've they've done things and, and we're in that room because we're trying to make the team better. Right. And we're trying to have that open, honest communication. It's a very sanctity type environment. And now in the business world, we talk about things like postmortems and after actions and, and like you're called root cause analysis. And that's all good. But I think the biggest uh, misstep I saw was this idea. And I mean, people wanted to do it. They thought it was great. But if you don't have the type of leaders that can buy into that, if you don't have the type of people that can take, um, especially people in, in, in those leadership roles, that can open up and admit when they made a mistake, or even worse, if you have those leaders that blame teams for their own mistakes, it's like they say, we don't have bad teams, only have bad leaders, right? Um, then you're, you're never going to get better. You're never going to get to that point. Yep. And that that environment that I called that debrief culture, we called it, what I labeled it was a just culture. This this culture, this idea that anyone can speak up, anyone can point out the gaps, as I talked about earlier, and anyone can point out our shortcomings without fear of, of uh, you know, retribution, without f- this, this fear of environment, if you're going to get black labeled if you do that. But that's a whole culture change. That's a lot goes into that. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing I had to work with well, organizations. On I'd love to talk a little bit more about that because, sure. you know, when you're, um, you know, obviously you were in, in the military and the air force and uh, I'd done a lot of sports backgrounds type stuff. And, you know, it's a lot easier in a sports environment to have a conversation debrief after a game about how we lost the game. And, you know, a few shots get thrown across the locker room you know, maybe there's a people that hurt, hurt hard feelings, but then you come back the next day in practice and you, you type each other back. Hey, we're all a team, right? Or in the air force, I can just imagine you guys doing a debrief and get a little heated at times. You know, people disagree with the perspective, but at the end of the day, it's you guys versus them. And we're all in this together kind of approach. I find that a lot of people, a lot of leaders have difficulty in the corporate culture and a lot of employees have a difficulty in the corporate culture because it's a little bit different. We're not at war. We're, you know, the employees may not be perceiving them trying to win a championship. They're there for their income, for their family security, and for them to look up at their superior and say, you know, I don't think you did the right thing in this scenario, or even to appear and create that friction amongst the peer they usually go to lunch with and put throw them, quote unquote, under the bus in front of the boss. It's a very delicate situation, I find, in the corporate environment. How have you helped companies address that issue? Great question, because I mean that's that's the that's the million dollar question I always get, right? Is how do we? Do, this is a great idea, but how do we get around this human ego idea? How do we get around this idea of, like you said, throwing people under the bus? And so there's a few things I I, I can talk about there. Um, first of all, I, I kind of disagree with you on the thing we're not at war. I, I would I'd argue that in business we are in combat, 
whether it's it's with a competition, whether it's the regulatory environment, whether it's um, you know you name it, uh, whether it's just the pace that things move. We yeah. are, especially when you talk about something like COVID. I mean, yeah. holy cow! That's that's probably one of the the biggest translations. You know, we're in combat ops. I mean, we're starting to get a little more steady with it. But the last few months, I mean, a lot of businesses have been in combat ops, I would argue. I'd love to get Rich's opinion. We'll go to the, my question in a second, but I want to yeah. stop there. As an entrepreneur, I agree. You're trying to save your business. You cannot have any hard feelings. you got to, you know, no question. Quite honestly, I would agree with you. Every company I'm in, I want to win the championship and beat the competition. That doesn't mean that the 20, 50, or 100 employees on my team who are looking at news on COVID, wondering if they're going to get laid off, feel the same way. Right. That's my, my perspective. I don't know, Rich, if you have a different perspective on that, but I think the difference between entrepreneurs and how they're viewing the competition in the fight versus the employees and how they feel comfortable or not comfortable addressing conflict. I think there's something that's skin in the game, right? As an entrepreneur, you own the business. If things don't work well, whether you're in a uh, COVID combat environment or you're in peacetime in your business, if things aren't working well, you're going to take the majority of that pain, not necessarily the employees. And, you know, the employee mentality, the typical employee mentality is I want to do as little as I can and get paid as much as I can for it. Uh, Obviously, that doesn't set a great culture. In the military, you certainly weren't in that culture where those people were around. But there are C players that are in businesses. How do we get those C players to rise up in times when it matters most. Absolutely. And I, I think to answer your question, Rich, and going back to your original one, John, it kind of goes back again to what I was talking about when, so talking about a debrief, for example, you know, first of all, you know, the, the connotation, and this is here, what I hear a lot of times, you're like, well, I don't want to go and throw somebody under the bus. I don't want them to throw me under the bus. Well, that's the first thing. Let, let's stop their timeout. You know, this is not an investigation. You know, what's the purpose of an investigation? To find blame, find right? Responsible. Exactly. Yeah. We're trying to find blame on who or whose, you know, whatever, you know, was the problem for this. In a debrief, what are we trying to do? We're trying to find lessons learned to make the team better. Okay. We're trying to, that's the first thing is, is the culture of it, the idea of it, what you do. A few ways to do that. Number one, do we want to just debrief after um, things that go wrong? Absolutely not. In my rich, my 2,500, 3,000, whatever many sorties I did, but in the military especially, of those 2,000, 3,000 sorties I did, how many of those sorties do you think didn't go really according to plan? What do you think the percentage was mm-hmm. that did not go according to plan? Didn't go according to plan. My guess would be, based on what you're te- what I'm hearing, maybe 80%. Didn't okay. meet the objective, maybe 10 that would be my extremely guess. low, right? Is the point. Didn't mean the objective. Very, very low. I'd say it's even lower than that. But when we came back, what did we do? Did we say, you know what, guys, we met the objective. We did it. Hey, nice time. Let's go to the bar. Let's let's do whatever, right? Absolutely not. Like I said, after every sort, we come back and we debrief and we would talk about, okay, we did this, but let's digest, let's break this down. Because what do you find when things go right? What do you well, number one, if you hit a home run, you want the rest of the team to hit a home run, right? But you would also find near misses. You find areas where, hey, we did this, but guys, look, we could have done a lot better if we'd have saw this or this, you know? So we, we miss a lot of that stuff. The point of it is don't just debrief when it's, when it's, a, when it's a negative outcome. Debrief everything that, that 
even a pod, not everything, but everything that even positive things. Don't just use it as a negative connotation of, oh, well, the sales call went bad. Let's go debrief this. Hey, the sales call went great. Let's go talk about this. What? Why? What? What can we pass on to everybody else? That's that's the first yeah. thing. And Brandon, before yeah. you go to the second one, yeah. I, just because I think there's a really good point right here, I don't want to miss. Uh, I was just talking a little bit about you. Know, you if you hit COVID as an example, mm -hmm. as a business, and all of a sudden you're in wartime and all of a sudden you're, you're ultra committed, all of a sudden you're having these conversations with your employees, you're too late. If oh, yeah. you build this debrief mentality in your company day in and day out, every time you're going through these exercises, when a conflict happens, you're already used to that process. No one's feelings are getting hurt at that particular moment. They're not afraid of it. So I think the big point to what you're talking about is if you have a culture of debriefing, and not just debriefing when times get tough, uh, that plays a big factor. I know a lot of companies when COVID hit, it was too late for them to change their culture. And from what I learned from Brandon, that debrief culture is about the lenses. We're looking for lessons learned. We're not looking for who to blame. And we're also not looking for what process can we create that's going to overmanage people ultimately. We're just looking for lessons learned. When we win and when we lose a battle, what are the lessons learned? How do we get better next time? Yeah. Sorry. So let's go to number two. Yeah. Uh, you can comment on that too, well, but I didn't want to I, I, It's brought up a couple other things too. So two, three, whatever. But um, number one, you have a structure to it. Yeah. So how you're actually going to do this. It, and, and again, don't be too rigid, but you have to have a way you, you conduct these. Otherwise, you're just going to go out there and say, talk, you, you get into this, you can get into this blame train approach. So have a structure. Can you lay what's out that? structure for our listeners? Like what's Very a, simply, what I use, uh, P-E-A-R. Pair, and this is actually human factors uh, background where I got this from, and it's it's basically person, environment, actions, and then resources. So the people involved, experience, training, things like that. What were the actions they took? Actual decisions, the environment. So you talk about regulatory environment, economic environment, competitive environment, all these different things. Resources where they. I mean, I can go more into that, but the point is, you have a, a basic structure when you analyze stuff and you look at it. On what actually, so you're not just focusing on just you, Rich, because you messed this up. We're going to look at everything that, that came, so we don't miss something. So that's the first thing you got to have a structure. Don't again, don't try. I always say this all the time when I, I first introduced that. I was like, hey, guess what? Don't try to boil the ocean uh, or solve world peace the first time you do a debrief. You know, don't take a large task you just took all quarter to accomplish and let's go debrief this. No, start start small. I always tell this to sales teams all the time. I'm like, hey. After, hey, after your next sales call, if you had another team member, especially, just go sit down over a you know cup of coffee or something. Take fifteen minutes and just just kind of talk about it. Go over it real quick, you know, using a, a pair model or whatever you want to use to kind of go over that. It doesn't have to be this. We go in a room and talk for hours over what went right, what went wrong. Just start small and go from there. And then the finally, John, the, the the last thing is again, I go back. We talk about culture a lot. And that's a big word, right? But go back. I go back to leadership. You know, if you don't have leaders, and, and everybody I think is a leader in some way or, or shape or form. Informal leaders, I think, in some ways are more powerful than the formal leaders. But if you don't have leaders, whether that's leaders in, in C-suite positions, director positions, VP level, or even just small team leaders that can, you know, have that debrief or that just culture mentality of being able to admit when I'm wrong. Because you've worked for leaders, I know both of you probably have where you had the ones that were, I never make mistakes. And then you had the ones that would own their mistakes and more importantly, they would open up to it. And what does that do for you? When you see a leader that you work for that can admit their own mistakes and their shortcomings, you, especially as a junior member, man, you're like, wow, yep. okay, I can open up a little bit more. So that that's, 
I think that's probably the, the biggest issue. But again, I, I, it's like golf. I also think it's like it's a leadership else. strategy, Brandon. I think it's a leadership strategy. It actually, is to it is. Uh, be vulnerable and tell your team, you know what? Here's my accountability in this thing because that strategy alone uh, works wonders. And you know, I, I tell you, uh, when you talk about this whole debrief culture, Rich, it, it makes me think about the way we were, you know, you know, learned, or I guess when we were out of college, and we still do it to this day. I mean, we cannot get done with this podcast, Brandon, before Rich and I have a conversation about what are a couple of things that went well and what are a couple of things we're going to do better next time. We just can't. It's, it's just part of our DNA. And I'm sure it's part of yours as well, where you just debrief everything. And it's, it's actually funny because you get in a routine with people where, you know, we, we, we're anxious to see who's going to ask the first person the question. Right. Because if I ask Rich hit first or he asked me first, it kind of changes things because we, we know to expect it. And uh, we had a guest on that came on and talked to Greg Moore and a fantastic conversation about what he does with his athletes. You know, what are you going to build on and what are you going to work on? And having that constant conversation, it's that same approach, is that culture, that just culture, that debrief culture, and, and having that mentality of continue. I mean, Rich, one of the companies, or that company you work with, you know, one of their core values is continuous improvement. That's part yeah. of that process. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm and curious, it... Brandon, sorry, go you, ahead. In your experience in the military, Again, coming from a non-military background, did the people who were calling the shots admit when mistakes were made? Well, the military is like anything else. I mean, we have good leaders and we have bad leaders, I would argue, right? So, and, and definition of good as bad is, is, is all relative, obviously. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, you some of the best leadership lessons I think I've learned or sometimes from those leaders that you you didn't really respect um, informally that much. You know, yeah, you, you respect the rank, obviously, but you know, some of those leaders that maybe, like you asked, Rich, didn't necessarily take ownership of of some of their shortcomings, or uh, didn't always encourage that environment. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that you know, the military has plenty of examples of of leadership that's not so great as well. Just like we have some of the people I would follow anywhere you know, that I, that I work for. So it runs a spectrum and you got the ones in the middle too. So it's, it's no different. Again, we're all human, whether I'm in the military or not. So it's no different than a lot of organizations in, in terms of that. Obviously there, you know, the military, like you, you mentioned earlier, does, does have the, the rank structure for a, for a very good reason. But I mean, we're still, we still have performance reports. We're still promoted. Um, you know, we're still graded on items and we're still evaluated. I think one way that that is a little different um, from the business world I've seen is that this idea that our commanders in the Air Force and a lot of the military, especially all, all the military, I mean, a lot of times commanders, you're you're not only graded on how well your organization, you know, hits certain metrics or performs, but you're also graded essentially. And when I say graded, I'm informally, obviously, but you're also graded value on how well the people under you do. In other words, are they being promoted? Are they going on to do bigger and better things? That's looked at because that is the, the caring feeding of your troops, the caring feeding of your people is an extremely important aspect um, that, again, in the business world, I didn't see. I, I, some organizations are better at it than others, but it's just something that's very, a lot of variables in the business world I see that, that and, and there's other reasons for that. I talk about morale, camaraderie, which is a big part of, of uh, what I talk about at, at LeadTAC on how you, you do that and things like that. But um, I think, you know, with the bad leaders and the good leaders, that's one of the biggest things I saw as well was those people that did look out for their people 
are the people that, and I always say perception is reality, the leaders you have, that the perception is you're not really looking out for my best interest. It's like Colin Powell said, you know, a leader's job is to take care of their people as well. And the day your troops stop coming to you with their problems is the day you've lost because they either think that you don't care or that there's nothing you can do for them. Either way, it's bad and you've lost them. So You had talked about informal leaders, uh, people who are not in the highest authority leadership titled positions. What do you recommend to people who are aspiring informal leaders? How do they go about influencing when they don't have rank in business? Well, what I always say is influence where you can, first of all, right? So uh, we were just talking about the debrief. And, you know, one of the biggest comments I'll get, well, Brandon, this is great, but I don't, I'm not in a real position to, to mandate this across anywhere in our organization. So how do I do this? And I say, influence where you can. I guarantee you, you work with people that you can sit down and do a debrief, you know, if you want to. And what happens from there? You start influence where you can and, and hopefully people like it and you can work on it and get it going from there. So all, that's the first thing is, is influence where you can. The other thing is it's like anything else. It's relationships, right? It's getting to know people. And this goes back to when I, I mentioned earlier, camaraderie and morale. And I sum all this up with what I call mutual support. And mutual support is a word you will hear all the time in combat aviation, really any kind of aviation. But it's this idea, this wingman concept, this idea that you never go out alone and unafraid, right? We always go anywhere with mutual support. We always operate with mutual support. Again, it's to mitigate human error, and it's to, to back us up. So when things do start changing, like we said, things change all the time. We have somebody to rely on, to fall back on. That goes into to peer accountability, another huge part of it. But biggest thing there is that, that mutual support aspect and being able to provide that, being able to, to not only know what your role is on a team, but also know what those other team members' roles are on a team. You know, a lot of times we just focus on our role when we're part of a project or a task. And if we really take the time there to learn what everybody else's role, that gives you that ability to jump in and provide that mutual support. And you know what it's like when, when you see someone that's not out for themselves and they're out to truly help out the team and you truly think they are or sense that that's the perception. That's when you start getting that informal influence. And that's yeah. that's the biggest thing there, I think. The mutual support, I can totally see that as an informal leader. You don't have to have rank in order to provide mutual support. So, yeah, that's that's great. Uh, I want to switch gears. Uh, you had mentioned decentralized execution. I'm sure we have entrepreneurs who are there, you know, their ears are perked up going, boy, I have more people working at from home now in the COVID environment than I've ever had. And things certainly are decentralized. How do we get successful decentralized execution in businesses? Well, it, it again, it goes back to leadership. The first thing is what? You've got to have that clear commander's intent. You've got to have that clear end state. Otherwise, because I always say decentralized without any kind of alignment, without that commander's intent, is what? That's misguided effort. I mean, your people are probably working hard, but if they don't know the direction we're going, if they don't know what that end state looks like, it, it goes back to the World War II D-Day example. If they didn't have a good commander's intent, we all landed. We're like, what do we do now? You're just in survival mode. I mean, you're just trying to, what are we going to do? Just, you know, you know, so you don't know which way, which direction to go. You got a bunch of people pulling different ways. So that's the first thing. And the second thing I always call decentralized execution, leadership backed autonomy. And you've got to have, 
again, going back to just culture, and this is the basis of everything I talk about, but you got to have that just culture, that idea, that environment where you can delegate that autonomy. And it's very tough really. This is not easy because at the end of the day, if you're, especially if it's your organization, your company, if people make mistakes and bad things happen, guess what? It's come back to you with bottom line. I mean, that's where it stops. Or if you are in a leadership position and your team doesn't perform well, you're going to be the one held accountable. So it is tough to, to have that autonomy. But if you, you have the right people, you give them that clear commander's intent, what the end stake looks like, that's how you set up that decentralized execution. If I'm a, an, an entrepreneur, I'm the leader of a business, I go, I heard what Brandon said, commander's intent. I need a clear view of the end state. Is there a method or a formula or a, is, there, is there a way to gain that type of clarity to then communicate to others? Sure. What I always say is clear, concise, correct, calm. That's what we used to always say in, in the military or in the fighter aviation. Clear, so very simple. Um, simple is always better, right? Concise, get to the point. It, it, we're not trying to elaborate this. We're just trying to be very defined on what it is and then correct. You know, make sure this is the correct thing. Obviously, I mean, it sounds funny, but make sure. And the best way to test correct, what I always say, are clear, concise, correct. I, I do this exercise all the time and I'll start very simple. I'll ask a leader of an organization, say you have a small room or small team, and I'll say, hey, what, what, is your, uh, what are you trying to accomplish here? What's your end state? And they'll say something. And then I'll, right in front of their team. And they'll say, yeah, we've been talking about this for a while. And I'll go around the room and I'll say, Rich, what, what are you trying to, what's your team trying to do? And then I'll say, John, what's your team trying to do? And I'll go around, and guess what I get? Three, four different answers, right? And the leader's like, well, we're not. I'm like, it's not clear because that's correct enough. Go back and start doing it. The other thing that goes along with that it's the old attaché, you can never communicate enough. You can, can never communicate your end state, your commander's intent enough. And this is one of the biggest issues I see. Because we as leaders, we as owners, as entrepreneurs, but we, we have it in our mind, right? We have what we want to do. And we've told people, we've typed it out, we've told them, oh, of course I'm clear, concise, correct. I've told them, but have you really told them enough? So make sure that you're, you're constantly saying it, but also make sure it's very simple and to the point. And then that quick test is the one I always like to do to show if it's, it's actually clear, concise, correct. Yeah, Brandon, I, th I think that's a really good point to go on right now, which is, you know, I was talking to an entrepreneur the other day and, you know, I was trying, I was asking him, what are you, where are you trying to go with this? What are you trying to accomplish? And it was a very difficult question. The entrepreneur couldn't answer. Uh, so therefore, how is he being clear, concise and correct to his team on what he's trying to accomplish or that business is trying to accomplish? And I found that, a lot of times, the reason why leaders struggle with communicating very clearly what that organization is trying to accomplish is they're afraid of putting themselves in a box. They're afraid of saying, our goal as a company is to do this, because if I say that, then I'm kind of committed to it. And then if it doesn't happen, and then if I have to change it, and then, well, what if this happens? And, oh, and, they, and they start getting all caught up in uncertainty. How do commanders? put a clear intent out there when there's so many variables that can go off that changes that intent along the way? And should entrepreneurs pick a clear, concise intent with the knowledge of this may change, but very clearly today, this is what I'm going for. Is that okay? To answer your question, the second part, the second question there, uh, absolutely. Um, it's okay to say, okay, this is our intent. This because again, if you're if you're going in, this is it. It's never going to change. Never going to adapt. That's it. I mean, come on, you know, you're you're setting yourself up 
to be way too rigid. It, but the the bigger part here is I think what you're what you're talking about. If you're struggling with oh this may change, this may adapt, I w- you're way too in the weeds. You're way too in the weeds. That's not commander's intent. You're setting out objectives for your people now. Step back some. That's your people's jobs to do. That is their jobs to figure out what they need to do. They're more tactical objectives they need to accomplish to relate to your in-state. Because your in-state, your intent, it may modify, but, and go by the way, you know, it doesn't have to be a one sentence or, you know, type term. There may be a few different aspects to your overall in-state. Still make it clear, concise, correct, but there may be some different, you know, different metrics or however you're going to measure it, you know, you name it. But absolutely, number one, it can adapt, it can change, and you may have to slightly modify it. Things change, right? But the biggest thing, if you're asking yourself, oh man, we, you know, I, what, we may need to do this, we need, you're, you're too in the weeds, yeah. I think. You're too in the weeds, you need to step back some and say, look, I'm getting too, you know, <laughs> detailed here, I need to make it bigger, bigger picture here. Perfect. And, and, and so ultimately, you know, when I'm thinking about commander's intent as a company, I'm thinking, why are we in business? What are we, you know, a yeah. very macro, macro level. And you bring up a really, really good point. Bringing your team into, here's the macro intent. Now let's divide up in groups and you three over here and you three over here and you three over here. And let's, you guys come up with ideas on what, how we can get there. Uh, too many times I think the leader tries to devise not only the grand mission and vision of the company, but exactly tactically what they should be doing and then hand out the assignments. And there's a much different buy-in you get from everybody, including in the debris, by the way, when they tear the plans apart, because it's the plans they came up with. It's easier to pull a plan apart when they came up with it versus if it's the commander that gave you the plan and the plan didn't work and go back and say, commander, that was your fault. Uh, So it seems to me like more entrepreneurs can can really set the macro vision and then build the team and get for more buy-in. Is that that the way you guys did it on your end? 110%. And we used to always say, and... I'm going to forget it. It's Eisenhower Patton who said this. I can't remember. But they always said those who are executing plans are should be the ones who are making the plans, basically. So, you know, plans, tactical plans shouldn't be handed down. The art of planning actually is 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 a better uh, – is more – is what you get out of the actual art of planning versus the actual plans themselves. Like we said, plans change. But the art of planning by those who are actually going to execute, that's where you wrap your brain around it. That's where you develop the situational awareness of what you're about to go out and do. That's where you understand everybody's team role so you can give that mutual support. Because plans yeah. change. But if we're in there doing the planning part of it, the ones that are going to execute, absolutely. Yeah. And to your point about leaders you know, um, bringing other people in and trying to do it all on their own, you know, one of the most powerful things – I had to learn this lesson myself over the years – um, one of the most powerful things, uh, and maybe you've experienced this once you, once you realize that you're not good at everything, or once you realize that you're not strong in everything, you have strengths and you have weaknesses, but once you realize that and accept it, that's extremely powerful. Yeah. Um, and it's extremely, uh, liberating on what you yeah. can do, what your the people you lead can do. Yeah, no doubt. And you, you know, obviously you've had a lot of influences, um, from a lot of different perspectives, you know, a lot certainly from your military background. What was the biggest influence that you've had in your career? And tell us a little bit more about that. Oh gosh, uh, just in general. Yeah. Um. I 
I think going back to obviously the the biggest influence really was was what I just what I kind of what I just said. I mean, so the environment I was in, right? Well, sorry, talk- Brian, let me let me let me come back. Yeah. Who was the biggest influence is really what I intended to ask. Who was your <laughs> biggest influence, whether it be a former, you know, military ranking uh, officer or civilian, doesn't matter, uh, or even uh, historical. Uh, but but who has been your biggest influence? Oh my gosh. Um I think there was there was there was someone who was a leader of mine when I was in the military that I worked uh, directly for. And I won't name any names or anything, but needless to say, what I did in that role was essentially I led numerous teams with them. I was kind of like right under them, basically, kind of that they're number two, two person with that lack of a better term. And I learned a lot from them, a lot. I mean, a lot of late night conversations, way after hours, talking about different aspects and things like that. But what I really learned from them, number two things they, they kind of taught me. And then I never forget when they told me this. They're like, leadership is like, you know, as a leader, you've got all these plates spinning, right? And you're constantly going back and forth and, and keeping them all. And there's two things that can get you. Number one, if you focus too much on one plate, what happens? The other ones start to fall. The other part, though, if you um, do see one start to wobble, you probably have to vote a little bit more attention to that one. But you still can't forget the other ones, right? And so leadership was about all these spinning plates and being able to not spend too much time in one, but be able to go over. The, and this can be people. This can be aspect. It can be different. You know, whatever you want to define those plates. Sure. And I love that image of leadership. But they're also the one that told me or kind of express that to me when I would have, I would struggle. Cause again, going back to that world, you know, you, you talk about type A people and typically the, the type of people that make it into the fighter pilot world or, or the, you know, the Uber type A, that's just <laughs> whatever personality is yep. attracted to that world. And so it's a highly competitive, highly uh, demanding environment of getting about as close to perfection as you can get. And so what he taught me was, you know, look, Brandon, you're not, you know, I know this is how we operate, but when you get out, you're not, you're not good at everything. You're not going to be good at everything. You have to find what those, uh, what your strengths are. And when you realize what you're not good at, the ability to reach out to people to help you more importantly, the ability to influence people to help you is what's going to get you, you know, allow you to achieve great things. So what they taught me there doing that and seeing how they led an organization, that was probably the biggest influence I can think of off the top of my head. And that's something that, that I, I had to learn when I transitioned out of the military and going into um, working in the business world and seeing that and understanding that, hey, the rest of the world doesn't operate near perfection like we do, <laughs> you know, in that world all the time. And that's okay. You know, I mean, we, there, there's a lot of things I, I, I can teach people about that world. And I think they need to use that we've talked about here. But you know, both in my personal and my professional life, understanding that, that, hey, you know, you're, people aren't perfect. And, you know, you're, you're going to have to accept um, sometimes just that 80% solution, if you will, for lack of a better term, uh, both with yourself and, and with other things. So I think that was the biggest influence for those reasons um, on what I've done. That's powerful. Before we wrap things up, would love to get your, you know, if there's one thing that you want every entrepreneur who's watching or listening, to know and do something with, because knowing is for doing. 
What is it? Situational awareness. And uh, we didn't talk a lot about that there, but it's it's another huge part. And what I always say is, situ- we used to talk, any kind of flying you do, you can talk to any pilot and ask them about situational awareness, and it'll be a big topic. You're taught this, no matter what kind of flying you do, you're taught about situational awareness. You know, I talked about a complexity, operating very complex environments, all these different variables that influence. That's what drives human error, right? We, are in, we as humans don't like complexity. We like simple. We like habits. But we don't. that's just not the world we operate in, unfortunately. And so it's going to produce human error. One of the biggest ways to combat against that is that situational awareness. Constantly maintaining what we called high situational awareness, right? So having a good influence of what are all those variables affecting me? You know, basically don't get complacent. You know, an example of low situational awareness would be someone walking down the street with their earpods in, you know, checking email or whatever, looking on their phone as they're walking down the street. High situational awareness, you know, you're constantly, you just feel on top of your game. You know what the competition's doing. You have a good idea of what, how you're, and it's not just situational awareness for your business. It's situational awareness for your people. What's their current state? What, what is going on with, with those people on your teams? As entrepreneurs, it's huge, Right. What is our situation? What is my focus? Because as I said earlier, you know, we're always, whether it's leadership or you're talking about your own business, you've got those plates spinning. And when you start to focus on one for too long, then what happens? You start to lose situation where they start to wobble those other ones. Or maybe you've got too many plates spinning and you really need to figure out what your focus has to be because, you know, it's like they say, the art of um, multitasking is a myth, right? We can task switch. We can't truly focus on multiple things at one time. So I, I think situation awareness and constantly what I call, uh, I call it healthy paranoia, kind of, kind of having that healthy paranoia always in the back of your mind. Because guess what? When you're straight and level rich, flying along 30,000 feet, got it on autopilot, clear sky, what could possibly go wrong? That's when something's going to happen. That's when you're going to be at your if you're not on top of your game, you don't have that healthy paranoia. That's when you're going to lose an engine. That's when something's going to happen to your business. That's when a client's going to call you and say, "Guess what? I'm pulling the cord. You know, we're not doing this anymore." So um, I, I think that having that high situation awareness is, is probably the best advice, one piece of advice I could give. Thank you so much, and and thank you for your time today. I know our listeners are going to get a ton out of it. I have a five pages of notes. If people want to experience more of you, do you have a website, or how would people? Uh, get in touch with you. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, definitely go to my website, leadtac.com. It's lead-tac, L-E-A-D-T-A-C.com. Um, you can see about what we do there, more about me, more about our team, what we what we do. Uh, my email, bwilliams, uh, B-W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S, at lead-tac.com uh, is a great way to get in touch with me. Or you can go to the website, and, you know, overview what we do. I've talked a lot about my model, uh, but we customize everything to our clients, virtually, live, you name it. Uh, we do leadership development, leadership coaching, organizational development, and uh, we also deliver through workshops and keynotes. Basically, we customize everything to whatever you're looking for and, and what our clients need. Thank you so much, Brandon. Thank you. I appreciate thank you. it. Rich, John, thank you so much for the time. Stay with us for a few more minutes while Rich and I break down the podcast. John doing a debrief and having pair. I've never heard that. I love that. So person, environment, action, resources, and looking at you know, what worked well and what didn't work well, not just what you and I have learned on areas to continue areas to improve, 
But looking at that in that breakdown of those four things, never heard that before. I love it. And I absolutely want to try it with that lens of lessons learned instead of looking for, okay, what went wrong? It's lessons learned. Yeah, absolutely. If you if you go through a little bit, I was looking through my notes here of the conversation and I love the way, didn't necessarily flow this way in the conversation, but through the conversation we kind of got there was everything starts with commander's intent. Yes. It started with what's your company's vision or mission at a very macro level, or what's the entrepreneur's dreams and aspirations and direction. But there's another key point that we talked about, which was those who execute the plan should be creating the plan. That is seldom the case Agreed. in the companies that I've worked with, or now maybe at a, at a micro level, they create the plan, but at a macro level, they're not engaged in the plan. And I know we learned earlier on about how powerful input is. When people have input into the plan, then they go execute the plan. It brings you to now step three that we talked about that you just talked about was the debrief. You're more apt to debrief when you actually created the plan to begin with and more open to feedback if it was a plan that you created with a team to now look around the table and say, we created this plan. This plan didn't work according to plan because nothing ever goes according to plan, right? So now we got the debrief culture that fits right in underneath that and then you have the situational awareness, the emotional intelligence, and the healthy paranoia mixed in there amongst the team members, right? Who are looking over their shoulders, making sure they got each other's back. They got the wingman there. They know that their team members are part of the plan. Mutual support. Mutual support. They got the healthy paranoia that maybe maybe halfway through the plan, this isn't working. What do we need to do? Like, let's be paranoid about what we're doing here. And then just that situational awareness to know when to modify and adjust the plan. So I, I really liked in recap, commander's intent, people executing the plan, create the plan. Nothing's ever going to go according to plan. So make sure you have a debrief culture. And within all of that situational awareness and healthy paranoia, I think that really is a good framework for companies to consider. And Brandon really put a uh, bullet point on it of tactical plan should not be handed down, period. Tactical plans should be created by people who execute the tactical plans. And the commander's intent was all about just setting the vision of where we where are we going? What's the end state? How we get there, uh, I'm not sure I care so much. I want it to be effective. I want it to be good. I don't want people to turn over. I, we want to make profit. But here's where we want to go. And that's the job of the leaders, establish that commander's intent gather the people so that they can create the tactical plans on how to get there. And the leader then can overlay their experience, wisdom, knowledge, influence on the plans that the people executing them create. Yeah. But Rich, you know, I guess one thing I'd like to dive into is there's a reason why entrepreneurs, business leaders, managers create tactical plans and hand them down for their team members to execute. Why do you what? think, I have a thought. Oh, come on, Why don't do beat think? me to it. I was asking you the question. Okay. Why do you think that's yeah. the case? I'll give you my opinion afterwards, but why do business leaders and managers and entrepreneurs do that? Why do they create tactical plans and hand it down when it, maybe it's better for the people to come up with the tactical plans? Yeah, in my experience with our franchise owners, many of them start as single owner operators or fairly smaller businesses. And I experience this with entrepreneurs outside of our franchise system as well. And they end up having to do the tactical execution. So they do create the tactical plans and they develop efficiencies in the tactical plans that they are executing. 
So then when they get good at that and they then bring more people on in their business, those tactical plans that really worked for them, they're trying to help their people. They're not trying to come down on them or overlord on them, right? They're trying to help their people by saying, hey, here's a tactical plan on how to be able to execute that. This works. Do it this way. And in the process of trying to be helpful and pass that along, they're actually stamping out all the enthusiasm that their people could have if they created their own tactical plans. How we did it when we were executing doesn't mean that's how our people do it when they're executing. Yeah. And I think there's a differentiation there, too, between what a tactical plan is and a process. Tell me about like it. Sometimes the entrepreneur will create the process for the business, which may be a little bit different than the tactical plan uh, in terms of how to approach something. My opinion, Rich, is efficiency, waste, and afraid of wasting time, energy, and money because the entrepreneur already knows how to get from point A to point B. But is it best for the entrepreneur to say, here's how you guys should do it. Here is the plan. Or is it best to let them go through that process, guide them a little bit, but be okay with them making mistakes? Be okay with them maybe not being as efficient as you would be so they can learn in their own debriefs if you have that culture. And I find that it's very hard as an entrepreneur to see dollars going away because you're not efficient because you you know there's a better way to do it. You, you want to tell them how to fix it, but you, 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 you can't hold yourself back. So you go fix it for them or you that do lack it for of efficiency them. costs the entrepreneur money. And they're watching dollar bills fly out the door. If you just look at a typical sales and production-oriented business, leads come in. There's a certain way the entrepreneur figured out on how to process those leads and maximize profit from the leads of whatever they're selling, a, a service or a product, right? So then they watch somebody else take the golden leads and then not execute what they know to be efficiency. They're seeing dollar bills fly out the window. So I, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. So so how would you recommend, though, an entrepreneur handle that? Because the best way is to, again, let whoever's executing the plan create the plan. But there, there's waste potentially involved in that versus the entrepreneur saying, I'm going to show you all what to do. I've done this for 10 years. Here's how you do it. Here's how you take care of the golden leads. And they're more efficient maybe in that moment, but they create a different culture. Yeah. In our business, we have an equation that we use. That's E times B equals R. The E is the effectiveness of the solution times B, which is the buy-in of the learner, right. equals R, which is your result as a leader. So let me give you an example on how this works. If I have an effective solution of, let's say, a nine, and I push that down on someone. I say, you have to do it this way. This is an effective solution of a nine. And it really is. That learner, their buy-in level, let's say, might be a two because they didn't have any input to it and they're just trying to check the boxes, right? So nine times two equals 18. Now, the hardest thing to do as a leader is exchange a lower quality solution for a higher buy-in, but watch what happens. If I ask the learner, and they have to have a certain amount of skill and experience and commitment to do this. You don't do this off of day one. But if you ask the learner, hey, how would you go about doing that? And they give you an effective solution, let's say, of a six. You're not going to accept the two or three, right? Like, you, like that's not okay. But if they give you an effective solution of a six, and their hair is on fire, 
Like they love it. They love their idea. But you know it's only a six. Their hair's on fire. They're an eight on buy-in. Six times eight, 48. So how did you get to a 48 result when it's not as good of an effective solution? It's because you exchanged a lower effectiveness on a solution for a higher buy-in. You get a better result because the execution of a less effective solution is going to outplay and outrank poor execution of a more effective solution. That's a fantastic formula. And I wish that we all looked at every single scenario like that. Because if you looked at the scenario like that, that buy-in would exponentially increase your result versus the effective solution, yes. I think that entrepreneurs would have more commander's intent and let their teams go figure it out. And you're right. An entrepreneur is not going to let their team come up with a too effective solution. No. They're going to jump in some way, shape, or form, whisper in someone's ear, and make sure that the effective solution is at least up where it needs to be, or else their business will be lost. Yes. But the power of buy-in with your team is, is very critical. And I think that entrepreneurs sometimes don't realize that if they act more like a commander with commander's intent and really bring their team into the execution of the plan, they can maybe spend time working on their business instead of in their business in the weeds of the tactical plans, which I, which I love. And I thought that was a great way to uh, express it from Brandon's perspective because the commanders don't have to be in the debrief room. They don't have to be in the fields with the, the, the troops, right? They can say, here's our intent. You guys go take care of it. And their effective solution, you know, the, the buy-in on, on those troops is a 10. Well, yes, and keep in mind, the job of the leader is not to solve the problem that their people have. That's not the job of the leader. The Easier job, said than done. Well, the job of the leader is to equip their learner to solve the problem. I just had a conversation with somebody in our business about this exactly. I won't go through the exact scenario, but uh, but we were talking about, yeah, that's actually their problem. That's not your problem. Your job is to help them solve their problem. And again, that, that continues to push creating independent learners who have high buy-in to what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. But it's great to have somebody that uh, you know, has lived the service side, yes. uh, you know, obviously has now moved into the management consultant or moved to the management consultant, now has his own practice and does speaking with companies because certainly there's a lot of relatable components from you know, the time of service and, and maybe some of the misperceptions that people have about uh, you know, the ranks and the rigidness of military yes. that I think he uh, exposed here very well. So I, I really love the conversation. I did as well. 